0: Good evening. Welcome to our second study in the book of the Revelation. Um, Before we begin, let's ask God to bless our time together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this book that you've given to us. Thank you that it is to be a blessing for us to hear read and to read. Pray that you would open it to us by your spirit that we might understand it right. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue our consideration of the book of the Revelation. We kind of went through chapter one and some introduction to uh, what we're going to call the first cycle of the book of Revelation. Um, does anyone remember what the theme of the first cycle is? Pardon me? Like a football player. Yeah, that we're gonna do yeah, that we're gonna look at it like a series of replays, so kind of recapitulation. But we said that cycle one has a particular theme. Okay, good. The church in its suffering. Good. So this is we're gonna be focusing on this first cycle in the book of Revelation. That the church and its suffering must remain faithful, and that's really what the subject of The first seven letters are. Um, And so we have these seven letters that are to the seven churches. And what we kind of want to do tonight is think a little bit about the the churches and these letters to these churches broadly, um, and then start taking a look at the individual letters and think about what Jesus is saying to each one of these churches. Um, These are, of course, seven letters to seven real churches. Um, I kind of like Dennis Johnson calls them the West Coast churches. Uh, that that John is writing to. Um, Because if we think about Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, um, the seven churches are all in the same geographic area, and the letters kind of go roughly in a geographic arch. Um, Starting at at Ephesus, then you go north and you go slightly west to Smyrna, and then you go north and slightly west to Pergamum, And then you'd steadily go east and south to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Um, And so these were all on actual ancient roads together. So if you were sending um, a letter to each one, that might be the route you would take. Um, And they formed sort of this, this rough geographical arch of letters. And Ephesus was the closest to where John would have been on the Isle of Patmos. So if he had sent a letter to the seven churches from Patmos, that's the way it would have traveled um, in the order that we have it in the book of the Revelation. Um, So this is sort of a well thought out pattern that John has given shape to this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to go from city to city to city in the order where they would have been lined up sort of on the west coast of Asia Minor. Um, and so these are, again, letters to real churches, just as letters to Galatian church, the Philippian church. Um, these letters are being sent um, as if Jesus has written them to each of these churches. And so that's how we really want to think about them, um, as churches really written to individual churches at the time that John is writing them. But of course, one of the things we said about the book of the Revelation is it's not just for these individual churches at these individual times. But part of what the book is doing is talking about the whole history of the church. Remember we said that's, that's part of what the book is for. It's for all of the churches. And the situations that were faced by the seven churches in Asia Minor are the same situations that the church is faced with in the world today. So even though these are individual letters to individual churches, they also have themes in them that apply to the church of every generation. Um, All the churches that exist between the time of our Lord's ascension and His coming again in glory. Um, And so we can think about these letters as having a function together, and they all have a structure that they follow. Um, There's something that's similar to every single one of the seven letters. Now I'm going to kind of run through this quickly. um, And if you're taking notes, it's not so imperative that you get them all as I run through them, because we're going to keep coming back and defining each one. But if we were to look at the seven letters, we can see that they have a lot of things in common with each other. Okay, the first one is Christ's command to John to write to the angel of each church. So you'll hear a repeated theme, to the angel of this church write, and so Christ is giving a command for all of these letters to be written. That's a common theme. He always identifies himself as the author of the letter. Um, and, the, and the different ways that Jesus identifies himself will show different emphases coming to different churches. So, for example, if you look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, um, you'll, you'll see Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right, that's how Jesus identifies himself to the church in Ephesus. If you drop down to verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. You see that Jesus is continuing to identify himself to every church in a little different language, but always referring back to chapter 1. So his self-identification is always looking to chapter 1 or the things he points to, right? So to say to Ephesus, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's what John saw in in chapter one, um, when he says the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That's how Jesus identified himself in chapter one. Um, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, verse 12, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. He identified himself that way in chapter 1. So he's going to be referring to himself. But you notice that each church gets a little bit of a different self-identification. And that's going to have to do with the message that Christ has for each church. Um, Then he'll also, so he, you always see a command. You always see a self-identification. You always see a praise of their good works. There's always a praise for the church of what they've done well. Um, There's always a praise of good works except for two of the churches, Sardis and Laodicea. Um, Those are the churches that are having difficulty. Um, Then you have an accusation of sin. All of these churches have something they need to do better. Again, except for two, Smyrna and Philadelphia. There are no no things that they're accused of that they have to set right. Um, And so those... So those things happen. So praise of their good works and accusation of their sin. Um, Then we have a call to repentance and or encouragement. Uh, Where they're sinning, they need to repent of those sins. Where they're going well, they need to be encouraged to continue to go well. Christ does that for all of the churches. And so you'll have an exhortation to them uh, to continue to conquer, to overcome um, and then they always end with a promise to the one who conquers, a promise to the one who overcomes. And those all take different shapes and different forms. Um, and so those are some of the common things we see in every single one of these letters um, coming to the churches. common features, and we can sort of unfold those a little bit more. Um, so a letter is written to the angel of each church. Um, this has led to a lot of speculation. Does that mean every church has an angel? Um, is there an angel of the church in Santee? Um, and if so, what does the angel of the Church of Santee do for the Church of Santee? Right? These are these are kind of questions, speculations that have that have grown up around this book, um, and we really don't know. Right? We, it'd be hard to build a whole theology of angels and what they do for every church on the basis of these words. And that's sometimes what we're going to find in Revelation. Where, where does this actually work out? How do, we, how do we really want to think about this? And the point is more that there is help that we don't know of for the people of God. Right? We do know that angels are ministering servants that are sent for those who are to inherit salvation, that they do serve the people of God in a spiritual sense. We don't know exactly what angels are doing all the time. Um, If you learned about what angels do from Frank Peretti, then you need to relearn your your angeology. That's not the right word for it, but I'm forgetting what the right word for it is right now. Um, Your your theology of angels, don't learn it from Frank Peretti, um, but angels do help God's people. And one of the things that we're reminded of is there is help that we don't know of. There is help that's unseen going on for God's people, that there are angels, and they do minister to God's people. They are our allies. Um, they are our servants. They are our helpers. Um, but we, I think we have to avoid trying to get too much of a robust angel theology, because that can distract us from the fact that our primary, primary help is Christ. He's the one that is sending angels to help his people, but he's the one that's helping his people. Um, to, to the extent that angels do his people good, it's because he sent them to do his people good. And so we never want to let those kinds of things distract us from the reality of what our Lord is doing in helping his churches. Um, and so I think it is that it is a good reminder to us that, that Christ is caring for his church, that he's ruling over his church, and he's even working in ways that we're unaware of. Uh, that there are whole other you know spiritual allies that we have in this world that are at work at Christ's direction to help his people. And that should be a comfort to us uh, to be reminded that we have help from our Lord, even in ways that we don't understand. Um, And so we see that, that continuing word that the Lord has a word for his people. The Lord is caring for his people and watching over them. Um, We're reminded of that every time he writes this letter and says to the angel of the church, write this. We're reminded that Christ cares for his churches. Um, the second aspect that we could focus on is that 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 common call to repentance you see time and time again in these letters um, that 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 the churches are involved in sins that need to be put away um, and the sins that we will see kind of again and again coming up um, as the angels writing the 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 instructions to write to the churches the sins seem to come in two main categories, worldliness and idolatry. This seems to be the, the problem that the churches get themselves into um, in, in various ways. And it, it really shouldn't be all that surprising that we, we struggle with worldliness and idolatry In the church, in some sense, that sin is the same—two sides of the same coin, right? Because if you—if the church starts to get too invested in the world, it's put something else in the place of God. Um, The thing that should be first and foremost in our attention has become the second thing, or further down the list. Um, And so, what we'll see again and again is when Christ has to call these churches to repentance. Often, it's for these two sins worldliness, and idolatry. Um, and you know that in the, in the Old Testament, idolatry is often likened to adultery. And so even though some of the letters to the churches will talk about sexual immorality or immorality that's going on in the church, sometimes I, I think that stands in for this notion that idolatry is adultery. Um, we can think of Psalm 106 and, and telling about how God's people have gotten into idolatry and gotten into idolatry. And then there's sort of a punch at the end of that that says, my people played the whore. Right, that's probably not a passage pastors really want to have to read in church with little ears out in the audience, right? But um, it, it, it punches home what, what idolatry really is. It's not playing faithful to Christ. Um, it, it's betraying him in that, in that ultimate sense. And so that, that often is the message that's coming to these churches. And in some way, they've put someone else or something else in the position that belongs to God alone. And have ended up pursuing something of the world in what they've done. Uh, embracing attitudes and actions in the world that the church should not embrace. Um, and Christ has to call the churches to repentance Uh, For some of those things, the worldly problems come in all sorts of different stripes and varieties um, for the churches. Some of these churches will be too interested in the wealth and the power of the Roman Empire, um, have too much trouble shaking off the wealth and power uh, that they're seeking after. Um, Some have struggles with the Jewish synagogues that have rejected Christ and are persecuting Christians because of that. Some of them have leaders of pagan religions that are after the Christians. Um, That was a very common thing in Rome. It it wasn't as if there was always persecution going on, but there's always a danger of persecution. Um, And if they, you know, they didn't allow you to denounce Christians anonymously. If you were going to denounce someone, you had to denounce them publicly. Um, you had to attach your name to the accusation. And the Romans had a wonderful way of dealing with you know, the problem of how do you keep people from being too litigious. And they said, easy, if you accuse someone of somebody and we find them innocent, then we convict you of that crime. So think about whether you really want to accuse that person or not. It was sort of ancient tort control. Um, that's how you controlled the court system. And they said, okay, if you're gonna accuse someone of being a Christian, then you've got to put your name to it, and if it turns out they're not a Christian, then you're going to get punished. Um, and still people would denounce Christians, and oftentimes all, all it was a matter of doing is having a Christian come in, and they would say, okay, you've been accused of being a Christian, here's um, a little prayer to, the, to Caesar that you can pray, and a little pinch of incense you can put on his altar, and all you have to do is confess that Caesar's a god, and offer sacrifices to this god, and then you're Good. Um, But of course, many Christians wouldn't do that, and they would suffer sometimes martyrdom um, or torture on account of that. And so some of the Christians are struggling because leaders of pagan religion are harassing the church. Um, Some of the churches are struggling with worldliness in terms of other kinds of false religion, false Christianity creeping in uh, to the churches, and so they can have all kinds of problems. Um, And so in that sense, we can see that really not much has changed. Right, There are churches that get too interested in the wealth and power of the world that either make money their God or try to make influence their God or some other kind of idolatry. There are people who are persecuted by other religions for being Christians. Um, there are people who are subject to false Christianity, bleeding into the church and, and corrupting true doctrine. And so in some sense, nothing has changed. All the things that these churches faced, we face just in different ways. As the church in this world Um, suffer from government suffer from other religions even suffer from corrupted Christianity Um, but the church still suffers the kinds of things that they're called to and 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 this can get the church off of its mission of what it's doing and what it should be doing and where this sin exists Christ calls the church to repentance to turn away from these things and to turn back to Christ Um, and he doesn't just call them to repent of sin. He encourages the church. Um, it's, it's good to be reminded that these are not just you know, churches being called to, to be better. Um, you know, we, we want to avoid this, this image of Christ as a cosmic drill instructor who's just in your face screaming at you about things. Um, that's not what Jesus is doing. Sin is poisonous to his people. That's why he wants his people to turn away from it. These things will corrupt his church, and be dangerous for his people. He doesn't want these sins to go unchecked, but he also wants to encourage his people. Um, and, and the churches are always encouraged in these letters. Um, where they've been going well, they're encouraged to continue to be faithful. Um, they're encouraged to keep doing the things that God wants them to do. They're, they're encouraged to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Um, That's what God is calling all of the churches to do, to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And in Scripture, whenever God calls His people to hear, it doesn't just mean, you know, listen to it, it means to do it. Um, I think probably every parent has struggled with this, you know, I told you to do this and you didn't do it, you need to hear me when I say, hear me when I say. I think I heard that a time or two growing up. Uh, hear me when I say this to you, and don't miss what I'm saying, right? Because you want not just for it to be heard, but for it to be followed. And that's what the Spirit wants us to do. And, that's, and that call always comes broadly, right? That's more than just to the churches these individual letters come to. Um, let everyone who has an ear to hear hear what the Spirit has to say. To the church, that's that's the that's the encouragement. Then the, the, the appeal that's being made to everybody. Um, so we need to hear these things because the same things they struggle with are the same things we struggle with in the same way. We ne- they needed encouragement, we need encouragement. Yeah. So um, a, a lot of revelation is considered symbolic. So were these actual letters? Yeah, I think I think it's, it's a circular letter. So I think they're all actual letters that are being sent to the church in the, book of the, in the book of the Revelation, yeah. So I think it would be specific messages to specific churches that are going through specific struggles. But in those specific letters to churches, there is application for every church. And so just we'd want to think of them the same way we think about Philippians. It was written to the church in Philippi at a particular time, but of course it has broad application to all the churches. Yeah, um, But yeah, that's a good question. This, this is not all just symbolic. Um, I think these are real, real letters written to the church in real situations. Um, because every church in every generation needs to hear, needs to have faith in Christ, needs to repent of where they're failing, um, and do better and obey God's word. And so there's encouragement for the churches to hear, and there's encouragement to the individual Christians, uh, encouragement to them to overcome, to conquer, to persevere in faithfulness despite what they're struggling with. Um, And everyone who conquers is given a wonderful promise. So where there's sin, there are calls to repentance. There's also encouragement um, where there has been faithfulness to continue and there's also a promise to those who overcome Um, and just as Jesus identifies himself a little bit differently to every church he also identifies the promise in a little bit different way to every church Um, the promise is really all the same it's eternal life and the enjoyment of fellowship with Christ um, but it's, it's told in seven different ways that are all beautiful in their own way. Um, what, what is the, the promise to the first church that they will be able to eat from the tree of life? Uh, what is the promise to the second church Well, they'll be delivered from the second death? Um, the third church is promised that they'll bear a new name. The fourth is promised they'll rule over the nations. The fifth is promised they'll be preserved in the book of life. The sixth is that they'll stand forever in the temple of their God. And the seventh is they will be sitting on the throne with the Father and with Jesus. It's all phrased a little bit differently, but it all amounts to the same glorious truth. Uh, To be with Christ, to be with him forever in glory, to rule and to reign with him, and to enjoy his fellowship forever. That's what's promised to everyone who overcomes. Um, and so each, each letter has a little bit of a different flavor, uh, but each letter is coming to the same thing, uh, ultimately wanting us to conquer. So if you say, what is God's will for your life? It's that you overcome, that you conquer, uh, that you live. Um, and of course, conquest is a big theme in the book of Revelation. Conquering is a big theme in the book of the Revelation, it comes up again and again. Um, In this cycle, we're being reminded, particularly the focus is here on the church. The church needs to overcome. That's what's being focused on here. So the camera angle here is on the church. The church needs to overcome. Um, The second cycle, the second camera angle will be that Jesus is the conqueror. So in the second cycle, you'll have the glorious picture of Revelation 5 and Christ coming Triumphantly as the lamb who is slain but is overcome, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, he is overcome. Right. So in the second cycle, Christ is triumphant. Um, in the third cycle, it'll be focused on the beast who appears to conquer. Um, the other cycles will show us that the beast's triumph is only apparent; it only looks like a triumph. It's not really. Um, but that will be the struggle of that second cycle. What do you do when it looks like the bad guys win? What do we do when it looks like the beast has conquered? Um, but as as the story goes on, it continues to show what the true state of affairs is. In cycle four, Christians conquer the accuser by the blood of Christ. Um, even though the beast seems to conquer, they conquer. Um, cycle five, we're shown explicitly that the faithful conquer the beast. Revelation 15.2, cycle we so We're all we're going to get here eventually, but... What I'm just trying to do is lay out the broad, the broad strokes. Um, cycle six, we're shown that God conquers. And of course, in cycle seven, in a way parallel to cycle one, we're reminded that the lamb conquers and the Christian who conquers will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. And so conquering is a huge theme of the book. The conquering of the lamb and the conquering of all those who are in the lamb. Um, and so this cycle particularly, we're going to think about conquering in the context of the church. Um, what the church is called to in this world. Um, The church in its present situation when these letters were written. um, It was written to a church that was weak. It was written to a church, as we say, under the cross that was in the midst of a lot of persecution and suffering. Um, This is how the letter comes to that church in that specific situation. And their calls to remember Christ and be faithful to him in the midst of that suffering where they're doing faithfully to continue and to encourage them with that promise for those who overcome. Uh, that, that struggling for the Lord, working for the Lord, laboring faithfully before the Lord is worth it. Uh, that there's a promise to those who overcome. Um, so things might look bleak in the present, but we are to hear and to trust in the Lord who will, sh- who will surely deliver his people. Um, and so... With that kind of groundwork in mind, then we can kind of start to look at the individual churches and see what are the different notes present in each of these various letters um, and as, as these things work out. So I know that I've made you kind of drink from the fire hose in terms of the, the overarching structure. Are there any questions about that before we get into the first letter to the churches? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the beginning they have every every letter is addressed to the angel of the church. And John saw lampstands and angels. And so there have been people who have wanted to know, does every church have an angel and how do, how do those things function? Um, and I don't really think that we can build a robust theology of angels from this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think... Yeah, we, we know that angels are messengers, that's just what angel means, um, and we know some things from the Bible about what angels do. Um, we know primarily from the book of Hebrews that they're ministering servants sent to serve those who are to inherit salvation. Um, but what exactly angels do for us on a day-to-day basis? Do we all have guardian angels? You know, that's something some people have asked. Um, do we all have guardian angels? If every church has an angel, does every person have an angel? And um, we don't really know. We can't really answer that with a whole lot of authority. So we're told that every church, every church that's written to here has an angel, in some sense, a messenger that, that's to be, that that's to be, this message is to be brought to, presumably to be brought to the churches. Um, but how exactly angels function, we're, we're, there's a lot we don't know. Um, and when we don't know a lot, it's not good to speculate a lot. Um, and part of the problem of getting too deep into a theology of angels is that it can distract us from the fact that God is the one who's helping us. Yeah. So I didn't say much about it cause I don't know much about it. Um, I'm not sure there's a, a whole lot that can be said with a lot of authority. Um, but I think the thing we can take away is there's help going on that we don't know about. You know, Daniel gets a little bit of a window to this and the prophecies that Daniel sees. But even Daniel, when he's told quite a lot about how the angel, how different angels are functioning, it kind of makes him sick. Like he, like literally sick, he goes home and goes, I need to lay down. Um, I'm not sure what to do with all this stuff. So I think even Daniel who sees it probably more clearly than any of us have seen it, still can't make total use of it. Um, He he says it, you know, it was too confusing to me and I, I just had to go lay down Um, so we're trying to avoid that. I don't want to make anybody sick tonight. That's my job. That's my number one goal. Um, so yeah, there's not a whole lot I can say about angels. I think we, we can take comfort. There's all kinds of help for us that God has established and ordained that we know nothing about. Yeah. Yeah, the first cycle is going to be the seven letters. Yeah, the, the first cycle of seven is the seven letters to the churches. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that so that we're all on the same page. Yeah, the the, the first cycle is the, set, the first set of sevens, which is the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Okay, we ready to dive in to the letters? Okay, well, if you turn with me in God's word to uh, Revelation chapter 2 then we can look at the first letter that's addressed to the church in Ephesus. So in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, we read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Um, and so you have this, this first letter um, coming to the church in Ephesus. Um, the actual church in Ephesus we want to think about. Um, the church that was actually there at the time of John's writing. Um, he begins the place he knows the best. Um, John had, as far as we know, labored in the church at Ephesus for a long time. So this is the church he knows the best. This is the church where he had labored for a long time. Uh, these are the people he knows well. Um, And so this letter is coming to them from a pastor who knows them uh, very well. Um, And the sin is being called out that they have, uh, but it's been being called out in a way that is kind of perplexing to us, right? Um, I have this against you. You've neglected your first love, right? Right? the love you had at first is how the ESV puts it. That that you've abandoned. Um, now, for us, our question obviously is: What what is the sin that they're really doing? What, what does it mean to have abandoned the love that they had at first? Right. That's what we want to know. So there is, first of all, this this acknowledgement of love. This is a church that loves, and we might say this is a letter about love. This is a letter on love. This is a church that, again, Christ identifies himself in a particular way. He reminds them that he's the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and has the seven lampstands. So it's reminding us of that picture from Revelation 1 and it's focusing us particularly on the Lord who has the whole world in the palm of his hand and who has the churches in the palm of his hand. Um, it's reminding them of the authority of the Lord as he comes and speaks this word to them. Um, this is identified to their needs. This is the Jesus who is intimately connected with his church. Right? He doesn't just hold the seven stars in his hand, but he walks among the seven lampstands. Right? So here's a reminder of, of Jesus identifying himself to the church as the Lord who's intimately involved with his churches. Right, Jesus is not to be thought of as some far-off administrator who's not paying attention to what's going on in the lives of his churches. He, he's a hands-on king. He controls all things and he's walking in the lampstands. Um, he's well aware of what's going on. He's the Lord of his churches. But as he's walking through those lampstands, he comes to them with a pretty serious warning. Right? That your lampstand may be removed if things don't change because you've committed this particular sin. Um, and so what, is he, what does he want to do for them? Notice he doesn't begin with their sin. I think that's the part we kind of want to get to because it's the, it's the part that's pretty serious. Um, it's the part that kind of takes away the sweetness of the first Thing of what he said. Um, But we don't want to miss that, right? The Lord doesn't come and begin with the criticism. Um, He begins with the the commendation. He begins with commending them for what they do well. Um, Their works, their toil, their patient endurance. How they cannot bear with those who are evil. Um, Those who test apostles and are not and find them to be false. Um, They're enduring patiently and bearing up for the Lord's name's sake. Um, It's a reminder to us that churches that have things that go wrong, they need to fix the things that go wrong. It doesn't mean they're terrible churches. It doesn't mean that they do everything wrong. Um, You know, we kind of live in in a little bit of a time where everybody wants to put things in one of two categories. We're always faced with a false choice. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Um, Do you support this person or do you not support this person? Are you with them or are you not with them? And it it always puts things in those categories. It seems like more and more in our time, we're living in the era of the false choice. And so the thing we want to avoid with these letters is not just to say, good church or bad church? Is Jesus really happy with them or is Jesus really unhappy with them? How do we categorize this church? Um, More to the point is to say, where the church has done the things that are done well, keep going. And there's a lot that this church has done well. Right? And Jesus says, where that's going on, it should continue. You hate what's evil. I hate what's evil. You hate false teachers who pretend to come in my name. I hate those things too. You're patiently enduring, which means that you're enduring what's going on and you're doing it patiently. You recognize that things will turn in God's time. And you're patiently waiting on that time. Um, God's people always have to be reminded, we, we will outweigh the evil. Um, hope will prevail in the end. We don't know when the end is coming, but the good that Christ is working for his church will outstrip all that we suffer in this life. And there are that's doing that. They're patiently enduring what's gone wrong. They're opposed to immorality. They're committed to the truth. They're rejecting false apostles. They're rejecting the Nicolaitans. Um, Now, it's not clear to anyone what exactly the error of the Nicolaitans was. Um, But it's clearly something that God hates. It's clearly something that was um, troubling the churches. And this is a church that seems to have had the discernment to say, that is not of Christ. Um, And Christ commends them for hating what he hates. This false teaching. And so there's a lot in this church that that gives the appearance of them being healthy and faithful. Um, And yet at the same time, all the things they're doing well, they're still in critical danger, right, of having their lampstand, their status as a true church, we might say, removed if they don't repent of what they're not doing well. Um, And they've fallen away from their The love that they had at first. Um, Now, we could probably go around the room and speculate about what that love was. and We probably could all have a theory. Um, There's there's probably things that everybody's heard about this passage and things um, that we could point to. But there's been a particular mention of love already in the book of Revelation. And since there's a lot in this first letter that is drawing our attention back to chapter 1... Um, we could go back to chapter 1 and think, did we ever hear anything about love in chapter 1? Well, we did hear about love um, in chapter 1. We heard about the Lord who's being described in verse 5 as him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Um, That love that the Lord has for the church, Um, what seems to be, Said here is that they're losing that love for Christ. That they're 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 enduring. Their 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 doctrine is on point. They're doing all those things well, but they've lost the perspective of loving Jesus. Um, and you know, this I think can really come and hit a reformed church right between the eyes because there's always a danger that we get so you know, locked up in our doctrine that we forget that this is all in service of knowing Jesus better um, and growing in grace and in knowledge of Him so that we might know Him and love Him and serve Him. You know, we never want to get so swamped by our doctrine that we forget our Lord, right? Um, because it's important to know that, I hope you, you're, not, you're not going to suspect me of downplaying the importance of doctrine as a reform minister, but it's more important that you know who Jesus is and you love him, right? And and there can be a kind of Christianity that gets so down into the weeds about we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, and we'll talk forever about justification, we'll talk forever about our doctrine. Um, And we, we can sometimes almost leave the impression that you're saved by the content of what you believe, not by the Christ in whom you believe. Um, that, that it's Jesus at the end of the day who you love. And that all of this doctrine is important because it helps you to know him better and to serve him better. And what it seems like is maybe they're becoming very good experts on what is true, but losing the love for Christ that should shine forth in the church. Um, and we never want to get, that, get to that point ever. Right? Some at times I think people falsely accuse the Reformed Church of being like that. Um, that we're more concerned with our doctrine than we are with loving Jesus. But I think this letter is a good warning to us. If you have all these other things, but you don't have a love for the Lord, right? that that love that he shows to us is not reciprocated, um, then a church is really in a very dangerous position. We have to make sure that we are continuing to love the Lord Jesus Christ and setting our love on him. my dad in his book wrote, "Community, morality, and orthodoxy are wholly inadequate if the person of christ does not if the person of Christ does not remain central in the minds and hearts of his people. A mutually loving relationship with Jesus is foundational. Um, they've shown great faithfulness in how they live and what they believe, but they seem to be neglecting Jesus himself um, and I hope I hope we never do that, right. Um, I always like to, th- I've probably talked to you about some of you about this, but I like to think of the thief in, in, on the cross in heaven talking to other people, uh, maybe talking to Moses. And Moses had deep theological knowledge, and the thief on the cross probably had very little theological knowledge. Um, but at the end of the day, what they both confess is that Jesus is Lord. And they loved him and they put their trust in him. The Spirit had opened both of their hearts to see Christ as Lord. That's why they were saved. Um, I always like to think of how the thief on the cross would have done on a basic theology exam, right? We'd be very disappointed in him as a catechism student um, and and the work that he could produce for us. But at the end of the day, the spirit opened his heart to say, Lord, remember me when you come into your your kingdom. That's my only hope. And I think there's a warning here to all churches. Let's never lose the, the one thing that we're really here to do, which is to love the Lord which is to love the Lord and to serve Him. That's what we want to do. That's what they were in danger of not doing. Um, and of course, if you're not going to do that, what are you doing as a church? Why do you need a lampstand in the first place if you're not going to love the Lord? Um, and I think that's what they're being called to, and it's a warning to the church in every generation. Um, and again, the Lord doesn't just come with the stick. Um, he, he's, he likes all the things that they're doing. He wants that love to change, um, and he wants that to change so that there is a there is that intimate fellowship between him and his churches. Right? What, what does he want from them? What is his goal for them? What is the promise that he holds out for them? Um, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Um, that's a picture of intimate fellowship. God wants that intimate fellowship with his people. He loves us. He gave himself for us. He wants that same love to come back from his people. And the, the, the promise is, is, is central to that. The promise that's being held out is one of intimate fellowship. Eating with him in his paradise from the tree of life. Um, that tree that if you eat of, you, you live forever. Um, it, it's, it's a lack of love that threatens their fellowship. And the hope that's held out to them is the love they have for the Lord will result in that kind of in, intimate fellowship where they will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God and live forever. That's what the Lord wants for his church. Uh, that's why his letter comes to the church. So it's, this really is a letter about love. Um, he wants them to enjoy the very fellowship that they've neglected. Um, And it's a reminder that Jesus is there to help his people. You know, that he doesn't just leave us to try to figure it out. He comes to the church and says, you know what's going wrong. Here's how to fix it so that you can live. Um, It's a very important letter uh, coming to them to remember the love they had for the Lord at first, the love that leads to life. Um, and to return to those things. So that's that's really what that first letter is about. It's it's a letter about love. Any questions about that? Okay. We can come back to that. Um, now, now, none of that is meant to undermine you know, the other things that we do believe from Scripture. So I'm not trying to say that Jesus is saying you've got to earn your salvation by loving me enough or anything like that. We always have to keep our other are, all, are all, all our theology operating together. But when Jesus is saying these kinds of particular things, he's trying to hit in on what is the exact problem. Um, and of course, for them, it's a letter about love. Um, the, the second letter to the church in Sardis is a letter about life. Did I say Sardis? I meant Smyrna. Um, Sardis, Smyrna, it's all the same to us. It's all Greek um, in Turkey. So... Letter two, so let's read from the second letter to the church in Smyrna. So this is in Revelation 2, 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so this is a church about life. It's pretty obvious that this is a life and death situation for the church. It's a pretty severe warning about what the church is about to face. And so again, we have an identification of the Lord. He he comes and identifies himself in a particular way um, to a church that's about to suffer. It's particularly poignant that the Lord comes and identifies himself as the first and the last who died and came to life. Um, he's the first and the last who died and came to life. That, that's, again, a reminder of what we read in chapter one. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. Uh, to a church that's about to suffer, they need to be reminded of who their Lord is, uh, that he's the first and the last who died and is now alive. Um, he comes to them and knows that. And he's commending them again for bearing distress and persecution faithfully. Um, they seem to be suffering persecution from many different angles. It seems to be an element of, um, and we know this from history as well, but there seems to be an element of state-based persecution that they're facing. Also, Jewish persecution that they're facing from the hands of, that, that Jesus says, people who claim to be Jews and are not but are really the synagogue of Satan. Um, it's a reminder to them that Jesus is saying there are people who are saying you are not part of the people of God, but it's actually them who are not part of the people of God. You are actually the true people of God, not them. Um, so don't, don't let their what they're saying about you um, hurt you. I'm saying you are the true Israel, even if people are saying that you're not. Um, and in fact, those who are saying you are not part of my people are actually part of the synagogue of Satan. Um, this is probably a good, a good time to make a little bit of an aside and to say that we do not believe in replacement theology. Um, who's heard that, that Reformed people believe in replacement theology? Um, what people mean by that is that, that God started with the Jews and when that really didn't work out, then he replaced the Jews with the Gentiles, or really the church. Now, this is not quite dispensationalism. Um, what was I going to say? The church. Um, now, this is not quite dispensationalism. They say there's two tracks, that God has a plan for, the, for, the, for Israel and he has a plan for the church. Um, but people accuse us of saying as if we're saying, God started with the Jews, they failed him, so now he's moved on to the church. Um, That is not what we believe. We believe what the Old Testament had always taught, which was the great messianic hope. That God's people were the Jewish people, but there would be a time that Messiah would bring in the world. And it wouldn't just be the Jews, but it would be all the world would be able to come in to the family of God. That the doors would be opened for the whole world to come in. That's, That's promised throughout the prophets, promised throughout the Psalms. They always hoped in a great day that the Messiah would bring in the world, um, that the, the David's tent would be opened and people would come in. That was always the Old Testament promise. that was always the hope of a Messiah, that he would include in the family of God all who put their faith and trust in Christ. Believing Israel and the believing world would all be one people, the true Israel of God. Um, and so we don't believe in replacement theology. We don't believe that we've, the church has replaced Old Testament Israel. What we believe is that Old Testament Israel was always meant to expand into the whole world and has done that through Jesus Christ. He's opened the whole world to come in to the people of God. And as Jesus says here, who are the true people of God? The people who believe in Christ. And so he's essentially saying these Jews who are rejecting Jesus are not really true Jews. They're actually part of the synagogue of Satan. Um, and so you're you 're standing up against them, and that's that 's a good thing you don 't need to worry about them. Um, we also know that they 're about to suffer right, and that they shouldn 't be afraid. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Um, suffering is coming, but it 's not going to be for long is what Jesus is saying to them there. Um, now, it's not because 10 days of suffering is not you know, terrible or a long time, but again, here's another thing we're learning about the book of Revelation. We have the first of the dates, right? The first of the times given to us. So we have 10 days. And it's important for us to note at the outset, almost always in the book of the Revelation, when you have... Numbers of times um, that they're almost always pointing um, hours, days, months, years. They're almost always symbolic. They're symbolic for periods of time. Um, and so the shorter the, the, the amount of time, the shorter the symbolic time that's going to be suffered. So 10 days is meant to hit us like it, like it would hit you to say, you're going to suffer severely for 10 days. You might say, that doesn't sound good. Um, Sounds like a rotten 10 days, but 10 days isn't forever, right? That's how we're sort of meant to take these symbolic time periods um, in the book of the Revelation. They're they're meant to be symbolic of a short time. That's what he's saying to the church. There's gonna be severe suffering coming, but it's 10 days. It's It's a relatively brief period of time that this suffering will come upon you in God's timing, some are going to be in prison. some are going to be martyred, but all are to remain faithful, um, knowing that they will receive the crown of eternal life at the end of their suffering. Um, this church is, is really getting a letter about life and death, right? This is a church that's in the midst of severe suffering that are being told to hold on and being reminded of what Um, they need to do in the midst of suffering. This is one of the two letters where Jesus offers no criticism of the church. Um, This is a church that doesn't need to start thinking about how they're living and what they're doing. This is a church that has to hold on for dear life. This is is life and death for this church right now. Um, And Jesus doesn't have any criticism for them, only commendation and encouragement. Um, Because that's what God's people need in life and death struggles. Um, they don't have the time to, to work on certain things, right? When, when someone's struggling with life and death situation, you don't start picking at little things. That's not the time for that. Um, it, it's, just, it's just a matter of trying to hold on, trying to survive. And that's what Jesus says they're going to be faced with. There's no criticism here. There's only commendation, encouragement, and a call to overcome, um, Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Um, Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. That's a really hard letter. I mean, imagine being in the church in Smyrna and getting this letter. Oh, good. Jesus is happy with us for what we're doing well? Oh, no. (laughs) That's not not good news, right? Um, But this is the hope that God holds out always to his people. Um, Suffer with me in this life, bear the cross, and you'll receive the crown. Uh, And Jesus' testimony to that. Um, He suffered, he bore the cross, and where is he now? He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of his father. Um, He died and he's alive, and he's alive forevermore. Um, And those who live with him and suffer with him will reign with him. That's the hope he's holding out. Uh, to God's people in this passage. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Um, you know, what, what, when you're faced with a life and death situation, it's it's good to be reminded you can only die once. Now that's cold Calvinist comfort. Cheer up, things can be worse. Um, you know, there'd be kind of rotten comforting words to give to some of <laughs> The good news is you only die once. Um, But what Jesus is saying to them is there are worse things than death. There are worse things than dying. Uh, There's a second death that's far worse. There's an eternal death uh, to bear the curse. Um, And Christ is saying, you may be called to die this death. But no one dying and suffering for my name, there's another death that has no power over you. You will not be able to be hurt by the second death. Um, Christians die once and live twice. Non-Christians live once and die twice. Um, And that's what Jesus is holding out, this reminder to the church. Um, Suffer and stay with me in this life and you'll stay with me in the life to come. Um, John Calvin preached a series of powerful sermons on, on martyrdom and suffering for the Lord. And one of the lines that always sticks out to me is he says at one point, you know, if you had to buy additional life by denying the Lord, what would that life be worth if you had to buy it at that price? You know, if, if someone comes and says, you know, confess Christ and you're dead. Um, and, and you can deny him, and you can go on living. And Calvin said, you know, a lot, of a, a lot of our Reformed brothers and sisters are faced with that choice right now. And a lot of them are saying, I, I choose dying now than the life I could live if, it, if the cost is betraying the Lord. And he was saying that that is always going to be the case for the people of God. It, the life you'd keep living would not be worth it if you had to buy it at that price. Um, and so, this is a letter that comes to a church that's facing death and says, "Stay with me, and even if you die, you'll live. And the second death will have no power over you." Uh, Revelation will come back to that idea that there is a second death, the final condemnation to hell, uh, but those who conquer will live forever in perfect blessedness. That's that's the hard choice that is before us in that sense. Um, But it's also an easy choice. Do you want to die once and live twice? Or do you want to live once and die twice? I remember hearing John MacArthur say once, I don't quote him too often, um, but I remember hearing him say once, if you're living your best life now, you're going to hell. Um, Because our best life is yet to come. Um, And so that's what this church is being reminded. There's going to be tough times coming. It's not forever But there are tough times coming. You're going to suffer. You may even die. But be faithful to death and I'll give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hell has no power over those who belong to the Lord. So stay faithful. Right? So churches need to hear about love. Sometimes we need to hear that to fix our hearts and minds on Christ. Sometimes we need to hear about life in the middle of life and death. Situations, and, and that's what this letter comes to the church in Smyrna. Um, interestingly, there is a reformed church in Smyrna now. Um, Fikret Bocek is a Turkish minister who's laboring at the church of Smyrna, um, and he has suffered for the sake of the gospel, um, but they're remaining faithful. So um, that's what this second letter is about. It's a letter about life. Um, any, any questions about this? letter in particular. Oh, yeah. Um can I ask you a question about the replacement theology? Sure. Question about replacement theology? Controversy with dispensationalism and calling us replacement theology, if that is part of what scripture teaches. Yeah, I mean it's a big it's a big issue, maybe I shouldn't have brought it up. But um dispensationalism, you never replace anything, you always run it's like railroad tracks. The the church runs on Israel runs on this track, and the church runs on this track. And they never cross. They never touch. God has two plans, a plan for Israel or a plan for the church. And the only, the only difference is he was doing the plan for Israel, they say, and then he stopped. paused it at some point. Then the church, he does the church track, and when he's done with that, then he goes back to Israel. That's, so they kind of are two different groups that never cross. Um, people who say we're replacing Israel say they're taken away and we're brought in, so we're substituted. Um, and we're saying, no, neither, neither of those are true. God has one plan of salvation for all of his people, and the plan was always to have the Jews go out and be included in the whole world. That was always the plan. Um, you know, it, And that, that's what they recognize in Acts 15, when, when James says, this is exactly what Amos was talking about. The tents are being opened up, and the world is coming in. They've received the Spirit as we have. Um, and so yeah it it requires trying to figure out how those things exactly work, but in god's providence is a beautiful thing that Paul's talking about in that engrafted language of Romans nine and eleven, mostly eleven, is that it almost works like a wave in a bathtub. This is the advanced theology images you're getting from me um, but in, and that that's sort of what brings Paul to this moment of you know just sort of praising God for his glorious grace is he says, you know, what happens if you make a wave in a bathtub? You send it from one end down, and what will happen? It will reflect and come back. And in Romans 11, what Paul seems to be saying is, you know, in God's providence, salvation came to the Jews and from the Jews to the Gentiles. And who's to say in God's providence that as the wave moved this way and they were all brought in, That his plan is not to make his people jealous and have the Gentiles coming back and bring the Jews, bring the remnant of Israel in. And it seems to be that's the way Paul is thinking about the the glorious plan of God. That salvation came from the Jews to the Gentiles and now the Gentiles have come in. Maybe that will cause us as Jews to be embarrassed that we turned our back on the gospel and come back to the Lord. And that maybe this is how God is working in history. And even, it's almost as if when Paul is thinking as God is working, oh, the greatness and the glory of the wisdom of God. Um, that he would work in such a way that this, this might reflect back to the old covenant people when they see how the new covenant people have embraced the Messiah. Um, and so if, this is not replacement. Is never saying, saying this has always been the church, and that's what Paul seems to want to drive home. It's always been those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who are the children of Abraham. It's always been the people who really believed who've been the true Israel of God. If you're, if you're a son of Abraham, you believe Abraham. Um, you know, that, that was what shook them when Jesus was saying to them, You're you're sons of your father the devil, because Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. If you were sons of Abraham, in truth, you'd believe as Abraham believed. Um, and, you know, the fact that they didn't believe, and, you know, that, that was always this sort of ethnic pride that they had to fight against. God said from the beginning, I didn't choose you because you were a better sort of people. In fact, you're kind of a rotten sort of people. Um, I didn't choose you for anything in you, I chose you for what's in me. And he constantly had to combat that with them throughout their history. saying, so, well, God chose us, so we must be special. He's like, no, that's not what I said from the very beginning. I told you you were not special. In fact, you're a kind of a pain. You're a stiff-necked people. Um, but I chose you to show my mercy that in this small people, I could bring salvation to the whole world. My strength is made manifest in weakness. And, and that's why John the Baptist came and said, you, you think your son's Abraham? You think that's, God can make sons of Abraham out of rocks? Um, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So we never want to say... We're replacing it, and I don't know how dispensationalists would deal with with Romans eleven, how they try to work that out. Um, but we know we don't say we replace that. The plan was always for the for the church to expand, for Israel to expand and include the world, and the Messiah would do that. And he's done it. The prophets were right. You can write that down. The prophets were right. Um, so, yeah, that's what's going on in in that kind of theology. We're not, we're not replacing Israel, but Paul's hope was maybe this will shame us into coming back. Um, and then this remnant will be saved. Of course, Romans 11 is a whole other thing. I'm not getting into that tonight. Um, we can at some point, but yeah, that's basically the, the sort of warp and woof of it. Okay. Um, so there, the first letter is about love. The second letter is about life. Um, and the third letter is a letter of judgment. So, letter three is the letter to Pergamum. Um, I think this is probably the last letter. Oh, no, one more. So, I'm almost uh, under promised and over delivered. Okay, so uh, the letter to Pergamum. Let's read Revelation 2 12 to 17. And Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp, two edged sword I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality so also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it this is a letter of judgment. Um, How does Jesus identify himself in coming to this church? I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Right? That's, it's not a, not a good beginning for a church. Right? I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Um, There are things that he commends them for, obviously. He recognizes that they live in a very difficult place. Pergamum was a very difficult place. It was a it was a regional center of Roman political administration. Um, as such, it had many buildings and places that were devoted to uh, false religion, devoted to the gods of, of the Greeks and the Romans. Um, Pergamum was a, a very secular, very pagan place. Um, and it included a great throne-shaped altar to Zeus. Um, and that's, I think, where we get this idea that we know that you dwell um, where Satan's throne is. Um, there was a, a throne shaped altar in Pergamum to Zeus. And so it seems that that's the reference there. Uh, Satan's throne, right? Paul has said in, in, in the scriptures that false gods are false, but demons are very real. Um, and he's saying Zeus's throne is not, Zeus is nothing, but this throne is where Satan's throne is. Um, it's the same thing as Satan's throne. You hold fast to my name. You didn't deny the faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Um, Clearly they had someone well-known who was martyred there, a well-known Christian, um, that that should have shaken the faith of the church, but they they remain steadfast in the midst of that persecution. Um, But of course there is criticism. He warns them that they've been tolerating some in the midst who teach like Balaam, and Balak did of old. Um, Now that's kind of, again, like an Old Testament reference that maybe is not, you know, maybe if we know anything about Balaam, we just remember his donkey um, that talked to him. Um, The guy that was so dense that God had to make his donkey talk to him to get the picture. Um, But if you remember what happened, they were trying to curse Israel, and God kept turning the curse around, but they were part of the people that constantly were leading Israel astray in the wilderness, um, that Israel was constantly afflicted by the Moabites and led into spiritual adultery, into, into actual immorality. But I think the, the reference here is particularly to idolatry um, and the immorality that, that the Old Testament always calls um, adultery in the Scriptures. And so that seems to be their particular sin being turned away from the true and living God and influenced by all of the pagan idolatry that's around them. Um, Sometimes, you know, the church has become involved with other religions. And, you know, in in our day, it's kind of the interfaith movement that we can all sort of coexist together and all sort of do our own thing together. Um, Back then, it was the danger of allowing certain pagan practices to live alongside of Christian practices. If you grew up in Pergamum doing certain things and you want to keep doing those things that you always did growing up, even though you're now a Christian, you know there's there's trouble with that. We see that in the church in Corinth, trying to differentiate between how the Lord's Supper is different from a pagan love feast. You know they're they're just troubles that the church has always had with, accommodating God's practice to the practices of the world and the practices of the religion around them. And it seems to be that's the implication, um, that they've, they've been led astray by the same way that Balaam and Balak did in the Old Testament, leading the people of God in the wilderness astray, getting them to follow after foreign gods and foreign morality. Um, also, the Nicolaitans, again, make an appearance that... Um, that and Jesus is saying, I'm not going to tolerate it. Right? The, the language here is pretty pretty stark. Um, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Um, that's not the letter you want to get from Jesus. right? Repent or I'm going to go to war with you. Um, not, that's not what you want to hear. So the judgment here is very serious, what, what Jesus is saying. These things can't be tolerated in the church. Um, they need to to conquer these things and to overcome. And the way he tells them to overcome is also probably um, a reminder of that that Old Testament situation. He who has an ear to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, There are two references here, hidden manna, Um, It's a reminder that when all of this stuff was going on in the wilderness that they were getting themselves involved in, manna was still falling every day to feed them. So in the midst of all the stuff that they were doing, showing a rejection of God, showing an abandonment of God, going after other gods, going after spirit, committing spiritual adultery, every day God was feeding them. In the midst of all of that, that they were doing, God remained faithful when they didn't remain faithful. And he was saying, and here what he's holding out is the promise that if you repent of your sins and turn to me, I'll feed you with the hidden manna. Not like your fathers ate in the wilderness and died, but the true bread of life that you eat and you'll live forever. Um, There's some of the hidden manna that you'll receive. And then also I think he's using an image that they would have known from being in the middle of a a, a Roman judicial center um, with this white stone. Um, People have wondered, what is this white stone? What does this have to do with anything? And what's likely is if you were were tried in a Roman court, um, people would decide whether you were innocent or guilty and you would either file a black stone against somebody and say they're guilty, or you would file a white stone that says they're innocent. Um, And it seems like what Jesus is doing is using that image that they would have been familiar with and saying, I will give you a white stone. I will declare you innocent of the charges um, and write a different name on there, not just innocent, but Christian. I think that's the the new name um, that would appear on the stone. It symbolizes God's reversal of the guilty verdict issued by the world's institutions against the overcomer because of the refusal to participate in its idolatrous meals. When the government says guilty, God will say, innocent. They will be vindicated in his judgment. Um, That's the hope that's being held out to them. It's another way of saying eternal life, Um, but it's in a way that's particularly suited to the situation in Pergamum, Um, a reminder of the blessing of God to this church. Okay, are there any, any questions about that? All right, let's go to the last church that I want to look at tonight, um, the church in Thyatira. And that's a letter about searching. Letter about searching. That's from Revelation two eighteen to 29. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, Here is the one who has eyes of flaming fire and feet of burnished bronze. Um, Clearly, this is a letter about searching the mind and the heart. The Lord has sought out the heart of those who oppose him. He knows the hearts of those who have not gone along with him, and he warns that his eyes are searching. Um, He searches the mind and the heart. He will give you teach according to their works. Now he's clearly talking in this particular way about those who are with the false teaching and those who are against it. Um, we're seeing another pattern developing in the book of the Revelation, which is to use Old Testament pictures to explain New Testament problems. Right? So we just heard a description of Balaam and Balak, the Moabites who tried to curse Israel's people and stood against them and led them into all kinds of immorality. and we hear the name of Jezebel who always rings out as the worst of God's enemies in the Old Testament, right? The wife of Ahab, who was looking to kill all of the prophets um, of God, who was looking to establish Baal worship in Israel, who, whose daughter tried to destroy all of the line of David, right? They stand as the worst of the worst in the Old Testament. So to call someone Jezebel shows just how bad this person is. Um, And again, we see the forbearance of our God, that he's coming to them before judgment falls and saying, I gave her a chance to repent and she wouldn't. Um, And so judgment is now coming on her and this letter is coming to you and now I'm giving you a chance to repent and to stand away from her, lest the same judgment that falls on her falls on you. Right? I'm searching like those those eyes of flaming fire that we saw in chapter one. They're the eyes of God that search out the truth. That know what's really real. Um, and he's going to do those things. And so the people that are that are into these things need to repent of them. Um, they need to repent of their works. Or, or God says, I will throw them into great tribulation. Um, she has her judgment coming. It's a severe judgment. And he's pleading with his people not to be caught up with her judgment. But he's also recalling... Um, that there are other people who have not engaged in this sin. Apparently the whole church has not been guilty of this. There have been people who are faithfully resisting this temptation. Um, And he says, "...to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come." Um, He's searching out. He knows who are wicked and he knows who are standing. Um, And so there are the searching eyes that are going to find out what's going on. But there are also the feet of burnished bronze. Um, And and what, what are feet of burnished bronze good for? Smashing anything that's beneath them. And so it's a beautiful way that Jesus identifies himself, that the searching eyes are coming to find out the hearts and the minds of sinners but he's also the God who supplies the feet that can stand in the midst of all difficulty. And so when he holds fa- says to hold fast, you know that in Christ you can hold fast. He's the one who has feet of burnished bronze. Um, you, can't, you can't topple him over. There's nothing he can't step on and crush. Um, and so when he says hold fast, you know there's power there to hold fast. Um, that's what he's calling them to do, to hold on until he comes, the call to a conquer. Um, it's a reminder to us that, that victory does not come through compromise with the world. Um, victory does not come with compromising, with false doctrine. The people that are commended are the people that have stood away from it and have persisted in standing away from it. Um, so whereas, you know, we, we talked about the danger that you can have doctrine without love, right? There's also... This this notion that you can so confuse your doctrine that you're not standing for anything. Um, And what this church is to do is to search out that which is true and to stand in it. And to search out that which is false and to flee from it. Um, Because the Lord is a God who searches. So hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthly, earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Um, that, that's an allusion to Psalm 2. Um, that when the nations rage and say they're going to break off God's chains, the one who sits enthroned in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. And then he terrifies them in his anger and he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You can say you're going to shake me off, but I've established my king. And he's going to rule with a rod of iron with which he'll strike the nations. Um, and so, you know, Psalm 2 gives that warning. So be wise, kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in your way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Um, that, that's an illusion here, that they, the, God's people will be as he is himself. There it's, Christ will rule with a rod of iron. Now he's saying, you will rule with an rod of iron, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. Um, that's, that's a beautiful thing to say, not just because it's a beautiful concept to think of Christ as the morning star, but it, it's a reference back to a prophecy, um, ironically, that Balaam made. Um, all the way back in Numbers twenty four seventeen, where Balaam prophesying said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Um, I see him now, but not near. A star arising out of Jacob. And of course, Christ is the morning star that arises out of Jacob, And now he says, my people, I will give you the morning star. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see how, I'm going to close with this, but you see how these are letters that the church in all times and places needs to hear in different situations. Uh, We need to be reminded when we need to reflect on our love. We need to be reminded of God's faithfulness when we're facing life and death challenges. We need to be reminded of the judgment that comes for faithlessness. We need to be reminded of the searching that God does and of all the promises that God makes to those who are faithful. That to those who overcome will make them as glorious as the stars in the heavens and give them more authority and glorious power than any in the world. Um, it's, It's a wonderfully rich promise. And all of these letters we need to take to heart in the various times in the church. There's always going to be times in the church that these letters apply. Um, And the key is for us always to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church, to repent of the ways that we fall short in our times and places, um, and make sure that we're doing the things that Christ calls us to do so that we may receive the rich rewards that he promises uh, for those who overcome and conquer. Um, And so we want to keep all of these things in mind. The church and its suffering must remain faithful. Um, so we'll, we'll take up the next three letters to the churches next time. Um, are there any questions in closing? Yeah. When, when he says, uh, I will, uh, take away your stamps, you lose your status as a true church. You know, you'll cease to be a true church. That's a message to the, to the church itself. Um, that that there is a way you can kind of unchurch yourself. You know, we talk about the marks of the true church, pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments and, and church discipline. And most of our churches have said, if there's a church that stops doing those things, then it's unchurched itself. It's no longer a true church by its own practice. And I think that's the imagery that Jesus is giving. Your lampstand is gonna be taken away. You're not gonna be a true church of mine if you continue to do these things. Is that enough for one night? Okay, let's uh, let's close our time with prayer. Father in heaven, please help us as your church today to keep a close watch on our love. And as we face life and death situations around the world, we pray that you would keep our brothers and sisters who are under the cross now, that they would hold fast. May you remind us once again of what your word says about judgments that have been issued to churches that have become faithless, that you are the the judge who searches the heart. Help us to remain faithful to your word. Forgive us where we've fallen short. Would you please forgive us of our sins? Thank you for being a God who has compassion on weak churches, that calls us to an account and to repentance, not that we would be consumed, but that we would live. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to overcome and conquer, to be the kinds of churches that hold up and against the worldliness of the world and the idolatry that we're surrounded by. And help always to hold before our eyes those promises to eat of the tree of life, to be delivered from the second death, to bear a new name, to eat of the hidden manna, and to rule over the nations. Help us to remember that whatever we suffer and endure here will be worth it to have fellowship with Christ in glory forever. And help us in our suffering to remain faithful. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for coming.